Brothers and sisters, whether you're aware of it or not, this morning is not just the Sunday before Thanksgiving. It's also the Sunday in which we honor the end of another Christian year. Every year the church ends its calendar a little over a month from the time that the rest of the world will be gathering on New Year's Eve to end its calendar year. And we do that so that we as a church family can begin a bit early in our preparation for the story about to be retold again of Christ's life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his time with us in the beginning. And each time that the church ends its year-long story, it always finishes with this particular morning's proclamation of just exactly who Jesus is for us and for our world. And that is that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, I have to admit, proclaiming Jesus as a king can sometimes cause a lot of us to cringe just a bit. If for no other reason than it brings to mind memories of the kings we know from the stories we've read and from history. Those kings tend to be guys in a lot of power, sitting on thrones, wearing jeweled crowns on their heads and demanding obedience, usually with little concern in the end for those who are around them. And this is a problem for me today, especially because thanks to mine and Audrey's addiction with that series, The Game of Thrones, over the last few years, my image of what a king is has been stained for the rest of my life. But really, when we try to think of the best English title to give to this human being who was God incarnate here on earth, what else could we possibly use? I mean, let's face it, presidents are just as messy as kings nowadays. And besides that, they need to get elected, which throws off the whole idea of God and divinity, as do governors and chairs of committees. So if we are going to try and speak in our own language about just who Jesus Christ was and is and is to come, I'm afraid the old idea of king is still, all these years later, the best that we can possibly do, even if we would never ever want to associate Christ with any of the earthly kings and queens of ages past. But of course, where the outside world might immediately fall into just those types of historic and legendary characters when they hear the church saying that today is Christ the King Sunday, we as Christians should know without question that the story that we know about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is as different from the earthly stories of kings and queens and aristocratic people of power as any story could ever be. And the scriptures we've been given this morning to read, the completely different image of Christ the King isn't too hard to differentiate from the usual image of a king in our history books. If anything comes even close to those old stories, it might be our first reading from the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, the prophet proclaims this, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, And Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, the proclamation of raising up a king to execute justice certainly fits many of the stories and legends about finding kings to rule the nations of history. 
But the difference in the words that Jeremiah gives begin to veer off course right at the beginning in the description of this king being something called a righteous branch of the vine of the great King David. Now, a branch may be growing from that same tree, but there's no need for the branch to be coming directly from its roots. For the great king to be raised up for Judah and for Israel, what's more important than where the branch comes from is the righteousness of the branch. For, as Jeremiah says, this king would deal wisely, execute justice, and spread the righteousness of all in the land, bringing salvation and safety for all the people of Judah and Israel. Now, if you watched that series I just mentioned, Game of Thrones, there was never a king who really cared about much of anything other than himself, his own power, and the power of his family dynasty. And if we're honest, that fits the real kings of history as well quite, quite good. A king raised up to bring wisdom, justice, salvation, and safety to his people, even in the ancient lands of Israel and Judah, has been something the people of the world have dreamed of often, but have never really encountered from the kings and the people of power of earth. And so when we turn the pages in the Bible over to the Apostle Paul's powerful opening to his epistle to the Colossians this morning, we certainly seem to be ascending even higher out of that realm of earthly kings and power and into the heavenly realms of God's kingship and glory. In words that are almost as powerful as the prologue to the Gospel of John, St. Paul brings us into full understanding of just how great a king Jesus Christ is for all of creation. St. Paul writes this this morning. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transformed us, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. Now that, my friends, is a description of Christ the King for sure. One through whom all things were created, and one who is greater than anything that has ever been made the head of the church, and the one who is first of everything. That is godly kingship. But again, there is something in there that if we pay attention, differentiates it from our idea of kingship. And it also differentiates us from other types of godly kings that were described around that same time in the ancient world in places like Rome and Athens. For the ancient gods of Greek and Roman mythology were never much different from the pharaohs and the Caesars of their own time, aside from their polytheistic divinity. They were certainly just as greedy, just as concerned with themselves and their power, and they never had much concern for their people as the kings of the nations in the same way. For Paul and for the church growing out of Jesus, Christ 
is a king not because of all the regal power and wealth and esteem, but because of what he has come to accomplish for all of creation, which is to bring redemption, to bring reconciliation, and to bring forgiveness of sin, not to himself, but for all of his people. It is that which is fulfilling the king announced by the prophet Jeremiah this morning, and it is that which will fulfill the prophets that will come around the same time, the great prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel. A king who would turn the world's idea of power and kingship upon its head and declare a deeper kingship proclaimed through serving, through saving, and through loving those who are created out of God's love in order to be made true heirs along with Christ the King as God's chosen and beloved sons and daughters. And this all brings us to the final scripture passage assigned for our Christ the King Sunday this morning. And in it, if Jeremiah and Paul had some bits of kingship still lasting from our own human history, then the Gospel of Luke this morning completely upends that image totally. For the Gospel of Luke takes us all the way back to a place we don't expect to go when we talk about kingship. It takes us back to Good Friday this morning, to the passion of Jesus Christ's crucifixion, to Jesus' very last interchanges while he's hanging nailed on that cross nearing his death. Here, any reference of Jesus as a king is being made by those around him in total and complete mockery. The Jewish leaders look up at Jesus and call out for all to hear. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. At the very same time, the Roman soldiers who are there keeping law and order during the bloody executions are also making fun of Jesus, offering sour wine and calling out, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And lastly, one of those criminals hanging on the cross to either Jesus' left or right begins to join in the mockery himself, saying to Jesus, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. And as, it hard, as hard as it may be to admit, I'm convinced that if Jesus were with us in the 21st century on some reality TV program that brings to mind the Hunger Games, the words that would be said to Jesus on the cross would be no different today than they were 2,000 years ago. Because just like the Jews and Romans on that first Good Friday, we too would never recognize a true king of one who is weak and naked and nailed to a tree to be put to death without one single soul there to brandish a sword and attempt to save him. This isn't part of our human stories or our legends or our history. Kings have everything they need. They have wealth and power to draw upon. They always take care of themselves above all others. But that's not the kingship we're talking about with Jesus Christ. And it is not the kingship that Jesus came to fulfill. For as everyone around Jesus derides him for not saving himself, Jesus is focusing on succeeding in a servant kingship of love and sacrifice for others around him. Jesus is focusing on saving those by paying the price for their very sins by dying for them on that cross so that he can be raised and free them from sin. We hear Jesus this morning from the cross looking out over those mocking him and murdering him and crying out in the midst of their insults and laughter, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
Then just before Jesus gives up his spirit and dies, he's asked by another criminal dying on that cross on the other side of him, a man who admits himself that he needs to be put to death for the crimes he's committed. And he looks to Jesus and asks Jesus, have pity on me and remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks at that man and says to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a great act of love and compassion for one who we call the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the firstborn of all creation, the Alpha and the Omega. For he comes down to give all of that up in order to pay the price for the sins and the criminality and the lusts that engulf and darken our sinful world. Every time I read that passage in Luke's gospel, I'm reminded of the first time I was able to do the Stations of the Cross in my first parish in Kentucky during the season of Lent. That church didn't have the 14 Stations of the Cross like I walked into and found on the walls here at All Saints when I arrived. We had to order a brand new set and hang them ourselves every year for the Lenten season. And because we didn't have a lot of money and perhaps the rector didn't do the best job of getting a donor for this, then we had to order the simplest set of Stations of the Cross we could find from a company that sold affordable eight by 10 wooden plaques with the simple Greek Orthodox style image of each of those 14 stations. In the booklet for those stations, which is the same one we use here at All Saints, Station 11 is always entitled, Jesus is Nailed to the Cross. And in the reading we have for that station, we mention those very two criminals that we hear about this morning on each side of Jesus on the hill of Golgotha. But I'll never forget that in that image that we received, it did not have an image of the other two crosses. All it had was an image of Jesus himself nailed to the cross. After doing it for a couple of weeks, I had a parishioner who came up to me after the stations one day and was talking about the stations that meant the most to her. And she said, you know what? It's station 11 that always moves me to tears nearly every time. And she said that because she said, when you looked at that station and you did not see the other two crosses, you had to come to the realization that all of us who were standing around that station, we were the criminals. We were the ones who were standing there deriding Jesus. We were the ones calling for him to be crucified. We were the ones being desperate, asking him to save us. And if we can understand how all that feels when we think about the mistakes we've made, the times that we've tried to do something better and failed, and when we see our world around us and we put our hopes in someone to save us and it is let down time and time again. If we can feel that in our hearts and come to realize that the King of love is a King who was willing to die for us, to reach out to us in that darkness, to pull us out of that sin and to save us. If we can come to that realization, then brothers and sisters, we can understand why Jesus is the King of Kings why he is the Lord of Lords from that cross this morning, why he is there to reach out to save us and not just save us from what we've done wrong, but to free us from that which hangs around our neck and pulls us down ever onward. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we are blessed to fall at his cross and to follow him. As we move into the year ahead, 
Let's keep following him as our King and Lord in everything we do. Amen.